This was known to be the halfway house in the city for essentially people that were on parole from jail. So I wanted to burr this thing. I wanted to renovate it and to renovate it, obviously everyone had to leave. And then the upstairs was hilarious to get out. Like it was just crazy situation. I had to build rapport with them and connect with them. So I ended up, so I ended up wearing like a black hoodie and a toque to like have them kind of see me as like, you know, kind of chill to relate, right? It's just like a natural mirroring method. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, today we're here with Riley Oikel. He is the co-founder of the BNB Inner Circle. He is also the founder of Your First Income Property. We are super excited to talk with you today, Riley. We love to just kick it straight off with a crazy story. So could you just tell us your craziest real estate transaction or experience that you've had thus far? Yeah, the the one that sticks out above and beyond the rest would be, I actually went to buy a, a duplex in Southwestern Ontario. And the basically the situation was I, we, we had inherited tenants. And in one of the units, there was actually, like, like actually context quick, this was known to be the halfway house in the city for essentially people that were on parole from jail. So there was at any given point in time, six to 10 people that were on parole living in one unit. And it was just a whole screwed up situation. It was a duplex. The main floor um, was not like known as a halfway kind of unit. It was just like an older couple. And the upper unit was where there was at any point in time, kind of six to 10 people on parole. So I wanted to burr this thing. I wanted to renovate it and to renovate it, obviously everyone had to leave. The main floor was very easy and they, they willingly left. Like they were super happy to have me there to renovate it and for them to leave because um, pr prior to me coming in, um, they actually had their power redirected. Um, because the jailbirds upstairs didn't pay their their hydro bill, so the hydro company came and shut down the meter, and so the jailbirds upstairs upstairs went to the the electrical panel and Jimmy rigged it to have the electrical from the main floor supply electricity to the upper floor. So these people on the main floor they were on well, uh, I think it was old age pensions. So they had like a cap on their pension, and the um, this hydro now has doubled, if not tripled. It used to be like 150 a month. Now it's 450 because the power is being redirected uh, to supply power to the upstairs. And they were terrified naturally because they were like in their 70s and these people upstairs were like fresher to jail. And um, anyway, so so I, I was able to help them find a place to live, like the older couple on the main floor, help them find a place because they, they were used to renting places from a newspaper. Well, that's not the way that it's done anymore. You don't find rentals in the newspaper. You find them on Kijiji or Craigslist or Facebook. So we help them to, to um, kind of, uh, re you know, um, relocate and find a new place. So they moved out. Um, they were more than happy. And then the upstairs was hilarious to get out. Like it was just crazy situation. I had to build rapport with them and connect with them. So I ended up like, and I don't wear usually like, you know, I, I don't look like I'm out of jail. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> Like I wouldn't do so, I wouldn't do very well in jail. So I ended up wearing like a black hoodie and a toque to like have them kind of see me as like relate, know, kind of chill. Yeah. to relate, right? It's just like a natural mirroring method. And so I did that all over FaceTime and uh, connected with Buddy and like just kind of broed out with them. I I had to watch a bunch of YouTube videos beforehand to kind of like get the <laughs> get into the, get into the rhythm and and having them leave. Like he was just more than happy to leave. Like after I was able to connect with them and. They ended up uh, leaving and we burned the property. We, we over doubled the value. 
the rents tripled and it was just like a perfect bird. So, yeah. Love this. Oh my gosh. So as a salesperson, I can't help but be curious. Can you tell me like you were prepping your intro statements in your practice, your YouTube research. What was your, what was your strategy? What was your go-to line at the beginning to try and open it up? It was just like, Hey, what's up, bro? Or yeah, it, it was had, really matching mirroring to a T. Yeah, it was matching mirroring to a T. And just like a lot of silence and like pausing. Um, I, I definitely didn't come on there like smiling and like, you know, kind of like what I'm doing right now. I was, I was more like just laid back. I was I was chilling and I was like, hey, yo, what's up? Like It was kind of like one of those things. <laughs> and uh, and whatever he'd say, I'd say, yeah, for sure. You know, I, I would just like keep it short, keep it sweet. And yeah, and, and, and that was kind of the gist. Like it was just a lot of silence. And I think that that gave me a lot of control over the conversation, a lot of power and, and the authority. He was very alpha. He was he was definitely not like, like, oh, yeah, I'll do whatever you want. Like he was like, I'm, you know, it, it's going to be difficult to get me out. But it, it didn't just take like and I'll give a bit more details here. It wasn't just one conversation. It was like three or four conversations over the course of like two, three weeks to actually get them to reallocate. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, I'm willing to leave after like a half an hour to an hour call, half an hour to an hour call. It, t- it took quite some time. And, um, you know, I was, I was able to help him pay for his moving costs and first and last month rent at his next place. Um, you know, there was just, yeah, there, there was a good amount of, of kind of money given to him as well, like w- with the moving costs and first and last month's rent. But, um, you know, b- with that in mind, like it was still not an easy challenge to get him out. They were using yeah. like the backyard for like, a, it was like a junkyard. There was like easily three dozen tires that we filled up like a 20, 20 yard container with and and just like broken down vehicles and bikes and it was yeah <laughs> it's a mess but. this is so valuable i'm so glad you went into the story because like a lot of the people that were working with and helping like sales skills that initial conversation with the seller is like the, the big hurdle and so mirroring and matching is such a valuable skill so I'm, I'm like super super glad you brought that up so where where like kind of taking you back into a little bit of your journey where did you learn the process of selling because like I mean, it's not usually just someone stumbles upon the concept without having some sales background of, okay, I need to mirror and match. I need to put myself in these positions. So talk through your journey. How do you get to where you are today and what led you into the place you could be that person? That's a really good question. Uh, For me, it all started when I was 19 and I was at university. And after about a year and a half of partying, I realized that I was going to have a lot of debt by the end of education or by by the end of my, my four years of university. So I basically just started knocking on houses in the city that I live and asking homeowners what I could do to help them. Like what services could I provide? Can I clean your windows? Can I do some pressure washing? Can I empty your gutters? Um, You know, what else can we do? And so after knocking on like thousands of houses over the next three years, I definitely considered myself to have gone through the school of hard knocks and, um, and just learned a lot about building rapport quickly at the door, not getting a door slammed in your face, how to like, you know, disarm someone through humor, through like being friendly and just through matching and mirroring. So I think it wasn't something that I just picked up quickly. It was, you know, I was awful at the beginning. I was like stumbling and umming and awing. It was super awkward and uncomfortable, but I've through all the, the hard knocks. I, um, I think I built up like a thick skin, you know, I, I kind of say like, I'm kind of like Teflon now on the outside, like what bullet, bulletproof vests are made out of. I can like, you know, really deflect a lot of, um, a, a lot of people's opinions you know i don't really give a shit what people think anymore of me which is which is super helpful 
And, and it also just gives me a bit more confidence when I'm speaking to someone that was in jail a month ago and, uh, and, you know, has been in and out of jail for the last 10 years. Right. So, um, I, I certainly wouldn't be comfortable doing that conversation when I was 19 or 20, but having done the school of hard knocks and been rejected easily two, 3000 times, um, you know, it, it's definitely helped. So I would say that that's where it, where it all started. It was knocking a, on a door and then just thinking about it, like actually being self-aware after and analyzing and just being like, okay, how can I improve on the next door I knock on? And just like these slow iterations, slow imp- areas of improvement led to me being actually quite good at, you know, three years later. So, Absolutely tremendous. That makes a ton of sense. Um, that's generally the process, right? When you start doing something, you got to get through the period of suckage, right? Because nobody's good at anything right out the gate. It's just not how things work. Um, so I love your ability to get through that. I mean, you mentioned that you were door knocking and you were just looking to help with services. I actually know a dude um, that like at 19 years old was making multiple six figures doing something very similar. I'm just curious what kind of results you had doing that. Yeah, sure. So um, I guess when I was 19, it was second year university. We we um, had revenue around 55,000. Um, so it was 50, 55,000. And I had hired two students from the university to help me with like the services that we were providing. Um, it was, a, I think, 45% profit margin, which was enough to pay for the first two, like in Canada, it's pretty cheap for university, but two-ish years of university. Um, and then the next year we did six figures. So we were around, I think, 120,000. And again, around 45, 50% profit margin. So that year I was able to fully pay off all of my university and then um, have some good money saved up for like the down payment on the home. And then we ran the business for one year, more year, and then started coaching other people at university how to how to do it themselves. And that was my first exposure into like the kind of consulting and coaching space. Uh, I, no, I would have been 22 by the time I started coaching and consulting. Yeah. You're freaking 19 years old at this point. Okay. okay so by the time you're getting ready to graduate, like th- dude, this is so impressive. Like I've got so many questions. So like I went through similar types of things, but not at 19, 20, 21, 22, like much later. So like, who, how are you getting these ideas? Like, is this just your natural aptitude where like you just thought in those ways? Like, Hey, I'm not going to follow the traditional system. I'm just going to go knock. Did you get a, get this idea to like, most people just don't think of knocking. Right. Yeah. It's, like essentially like I have to, I have to do a show to here uh, to a company called student works who basically is like a company similar to college pro who helps university students to run like their first business. So it was a whole maintenance business. So they were the backbone of the entire thing. I leaned on their systems, their processes, and um, and, and they kind of guided the path. So I wasn't like in the dark with a flashlight trying to figure out everything for the first time. They were certainly, they had already had this golden pathway of success and I just had to follow their systems and processes to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Love this. So I, I want to go into a concept that you talked about. You talked about the Bulletproof Fest, which I actually ran a sales training group that was Bulletproof Sales for 18 months prior to the pandemic. We were having events. So like, I can really resonate when you say the word Bulletproof. But just, just to get your definition of Bulletproof, do you believe that it's happening, you feel more Bulletproof because you've developed a resistance to rejection in the sense that you don't feel rejection anymore? Or do you feel like it's more that you've developed skills. So where some people might face rejection, you don't because you're able to deflect and mirror and reposition the conversation to keep them positive and, you know, moving on track. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's a good question. Um, I haven't really thought of this much, but I guess to dissect, 
how I deal with rejection, let's say, I, I certainly see it as a, a catalyst to like getting the outcome. And I, like, I, I think the major thing right now for me, especially in, in what I'm doing day to day is, you know, when we're trying to create deals, like we're looking to buy a boutique hotel and like larger deals now, it, it's not not entering into those conversations, into those potential you know areas of rejection. Uh, like I'm not entering into it like I need this, like I'm attached to the outcome, I need to make this happen. It's more of like, if it works, it works. Like it's more of a nice to have. And if we can create a win-win here, fantastic. And if we can't, then that's fine. We'll just go our separate ways. And that just gives me a lot of like power and control um, in the conversation. And so if, if I do end up getting rejected and like we try to make this deal work, it, it it's totally fine with me. And, and I think we just kind of, you know, I'm at peace with it. Like if I knock on a door and someone says, no, I don't want my windows clean. It's like, okay, have a great day, right? There's just nothing else there for me. It isn't like I let that impact myself personally. And I think where people get their emotions tied up and that's what I mean about being bulletproof. You don't get your emotions tied up in a deal, right? Or in somewhat of a win-win if you can't create the win-win. Um, it, it's, it, that comes from being attached. So a big distinction to keep in mind when you're doing sales is attached versus committed. So I'm always committed to the outcome and putting energy towards like, let's make this happen. If we can, I'm committed to us doing our damn best to like get to that position of win-win where we're both happy and then we can do a deal together, but I'm not attached to it in terms of like, oh, I have to make this work. And if I don't, then my self-worth is tied to X result, right? So it's when you're tying your, your personal identity or your, or your worth to the outcome that you become like, you know, brought down and, and you kind of wallow in your own shit after the deal doesn't work or whatever. So you have to really disconnect from it and just make sure you're committed, not attached to, to said outcome. Absolutely. Yeah. And you focus on your actions, not the outcomes at all, because over time your skill set improves. And as long as you're taking the right actions daily, you're going to get the results that you want. And if you're not, you simply scale up the actions, right? So, I mean, it's simply a numbers game. I imagined um, you had several services. So, I mean, that was probably a cool way to approach somebody because I'm sure you were just like, hey, I'm like, what do you need <laughs> with help with on your house or something like that or something like that? Because like, it gives you so many avenues, right? So if you just go up to a house and you're like, hey, do you want your windows cleaned? You're probably going to get a lot of no's. But if you if you can mow the lawn too and so many other things, like if you ask them what they need help with, I'm sure they often gave you a reason that they needed help, right? Yeah, yeah. It was certainly a balance of not, um, not having so many services that it was like we're a jack of all because it's difficult to then train the students to do like three dozen services. We kept it kind of niched, but still like opened it up enough that there was a good possibility we could have some work that we could do for them. So, yeah, it, yeah. And uh, so that worked well. And then depending on how they would respond to, to like, what work can we help you with? If there was this ongoing service that they kept mentioning that we weren't providing, then we would actually like take that into account when we expanded and we opened up the doors to other services. Like we ended up doing um, gutter guard installation because it was very profitable. The margins were great. Um, so gutter guards go right on top of the gutters. And it was very easy to teach the students how to do that. So, you know, that, that's a prime example of when when you're doing business and and you're talking to people and asking, what are your problems? What are what are you going through? If this consistent problem continues to come up, then potentially that's an opportunity for you in the future. Like here's another example. When I was com coming up through real estate, I, I would go to a lot of conferences and events, and there'd be speakers on stage that would ask the audience, "Who here has bought a property?" and very rarely would someone raise their hand, like maybe like 10% of the group would raise their hand. And then they would ask who here owns five or more property. And it was interesting because the people that already bought one would keep their hands raised and they still, 
So it's like once they got to the first one, it was doors are unlocked and now they own five or 10 or 15 doors. So I, I realized that there was a huge area of opportunity to help people buy their first. And then if they could get to their first from zero to one, then it was just floodgates are open. Let's go for this, right? They had figured it out. So that's why I ended up buying or starting a property to help people to buy their first because the overwhelming majority of people in North America don't even own one investment property. But once they own one, then they own five and 10 pretty soon after. Love this. I mean, it's like the concept of getting the monkey off your back, right? Once once you're able to dispel that major fear, it's not as scary as it once was. You see the profits, the potential net worth growth, all that thing. It just, yeah. Like I've got so much I want to dive into with you. So first of all, I love your attached versus committed. And I think there's so many areas of life where this could be so applicable. Dive into the word attached. Maybe, maybe would it be fair to say that you don't want to attach your identity to the results, right? You're committed to the results, but it's like, so you, you might be attached to the process, but just not the outcome. You know, you're committed to a certain process. So like, I mean, it's like, even in relationships, like I've noticed that this could be like really helpful. You know, like one of the things I struggle with earlier in life is, you know, you make a friend and that friend becomes super like influential in your life and you're like best friends and all of a sudden, you know, they move away and it's like, you have to deal with this thing. And like, I've learned that like relationships are for a season. And so like for as long as we have them for the amount that we have them, it's good. But then all of a sudden, you know, they may, their life may change. They may move away. And that's helped me like have a lot more positivity towards the flow of relationships. So like, is that what you're saying when you say unattached, like your identity or, or how would you describe it? Yeah, I always go off of the word like self-worth, um, you know, and, and I struggled with this for even the first year when I was knocking on houses, like every time I was rejected, I, I would, there would be this negative self-dialogue that would run in my head and it would be, oh, you're not good enough, you know, oh, they didn't like you. And, you know, and, and so all these negative thoughts would come into my head. So I, I didn't really change. Well, maybe, I guess, you know, your identity could change a bit. So that could be a factor if, if you allow it to. I didn't go to that level. I feel like changing your identity is like, that's a big transformation. And it's going to take a big impact to change one's identity. So I, I never really got to that point. But I think my self-worth in the first year of knocking on houses was like starting to like wither away and deplete. And then I, I certainly kind of, uh, you know, read, read a bunch of books and understood the mind a bit better and got some coaching on this. And I was like, no, like I'm going to actually now change the narrative. I'm going to reframe how I'm looking at the entire process of knocking houses and being rejected or accepted. And it was that if they don't want the service and that's fine. And if someone yells at me, because sometimes people would swear and mm -hmm. yell at me and I'm like 19 and I'm like, I would actually start to feel bad for them. I'd be like, oh, like they're just not having a good day. I feel bad for them. Right. It, well, it had, had nothing to do with me. It, it kind of more more so had a lot to do with them. And it's like, they're just not in the right place right now. But again, the narrative would change and I would approach these these conversations with people at their front door as I'm actually trying to be the best part of these people's day. Like, I'm actually, uh, you know, maybe maybe their their wife yells at them when they come home from work and they don't like what they do for work. And, and, and you know, and there's just a lot going on with their life right now. Maybe I can be the best part of their day. And, and, you know, so I'm committed to being the best part of this person's day in the next, you know, five minutes I have with them potentially at the front door. And if they don't want me to be that person, then that's totally fine. I'll let them be. Um, but yeah, it, it was, you know, I, I think again, it was the self-worth piece. It was like, I was originally attached to the self-worth piece and my, my dialogue would run and it'd be a negative dialogue. It was getting rid of that, um, not letting that affect me. And, um, 
and just being committed again to this new narrative, this new framing that I had given it, which is being the best part of their day. This is truly amazing. And so one, you're putting yourself in the mindset of service. And so that's a, a pretty big transformation. And then you're separating. Like, I, I think this is something that is so like, it's not stated enough is that you're allowing other people's emotions and thoughts and opinions to be theirs and not yours. And so as they ramp up their animosity, their energy, whatever negative emotions people throw at sales professionals, you then are taking more of a comical response. Like, gosh, like this is pretty insane. Like, you know, how angry this person's getting and then able to translate that feeling into, a, again, an ability to serve somebody. Because if they're responding so crazy to you, then they probably need some love, right? They probably need a hug. They probably need whatever. Like, this is, this is awesome. How, like, if you walk us through the timeline, from the time that, because you, you were abusing yourself a little bit, it sounds like at the beginning, like most of us were when we got into sales. Then you get coached. You learn that can't do this anymore. What was like the timeline? How many times did you have to firm this in your mind to, to have this process stick to where it became just part of your normal thought process? Yeah, again, I think luckily I was in the position where it was like low risk, somewhat low reward when you're like selling $50 window cleaning projects at someone's front door. So I had a lot of practice and it was just a very long runway for me to slowly adapt and change. I, I would say that, you know, as soon as I had that coaching and as soon as I had that breakthrough of this just doesn't work the way that I'm treating the conversations at the door and tying it in and attaching it to my identity, like you were saying, your self-worth and that negative dialogue that was running in my head. Um, I, you know, as soon as I had that breakthrough, I think it was a big, big change, but it still took probably a few hundred more houses and, and conversations with homeowners for me to, to really like create this new pathway, this new habit that I was now like focused on creating. And, um, and to this day, it served me so well, right. That habit that I've slowly created, which is more committed to being the best part of their day and not attached to like anything that they say, you know depletes my self-worth potentially. So yeah, it, it did take a while, right? It was like hundreds of doors for sure afterwards for me to, to create that new habit. But, you know, I'd rather do it when the, when the stakes are low than when the stakes are high because now we're dealing with million dollar transactions, like multi-million dollar transactions in real estate. And, you know, the stakes are a bit higher. Um, so, you know, it, it was nice to start it at the $50 level, right? Where the stakes are lower and there's not much, not much risk. Sometimes these the sales now take a year or two years to kind of like start marinating and fostering this relationship with real estate investors and creating that transaction to happen. So um, it, it's good to kind of start off creating these habits at, at, at a lower level and then level up from there. Absolutely. So let's talk about that journey. So you had this maintenance company. You started coaching other people how to do the same thing. Like what, what brought you to real estate? And obviously, how, how did that skill set transfer? Although I think it's kind of obvious. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I didn't just approach this like home maintenance business with the with the objective of like just making money. It was mainly like learning and not just learning from how to run this business, but more so just learning from the people that I was speaking to because we targeted the top 5% of the area that I lived, like 5% of homeowners because not everyone can afford you know, the luxury of paying someone to clean their windows or empty their gutters or pressure wash. So we were, we were actually going after like the top earners in the city of 500,000 people in London, Ontario. And so it, it was really fascinating because after I gained some of these clients, like multi-million dollar clients, I'd be able to dissect how they grew how they kind of built their, their wealth and their, and their, 
you know, everything that they did. So um, I was like, hey, I'm, I'm brand new to business. I've just been doing it for a few years. What advice would you have for me starting off? And a lot of the advice revolved around buying property, you know, buying, buying rental properties and keeping your expenses low and, and making sure that you're only living on a certain percent of what you're making. And so as I started to make more money with this whole maintenance business, I kept all this in mind and I really kind of focused on how do I buy a rental property? How do I, how do I get my foot in the door? So it was, it was with that. And then I also had a mentor of mine that lived in the city that I lived, um, who actually owned a, a pretty large portfolio privately. And so he was like my foot in the door. I ended up doing his property management acquisitions, renovation management. And, um, and so I worked with him for about two and a half ish years and, um, learned a lot. That was my first exposure to the inside of what a portfolio could look like. So you get exposed to this dude's portfolio. What happens to you? Yeah. Like mentally, otherwise. Uh, man, <laughs> I was overwhelmed. It was just, I was drinking from a fire hose for, yeah, the entire time I was, I was working with him. Just, just like, just so much information and the terminology, the jargon words and like everything that comes along with real estate. But I'm, I'm, I'm the type of person that if I'm committed to doing something, I'm going to go full immersion. So it, it was insane. Like any moment I had, I was listening to a real estate podcast like this one. I was reading a book. I was watching YouTube videos. I was speaking to other real estate investors. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely started, you know, for the, for that two and a half years I was with him, I put in probably 70, 80 hours a week in just like learning and soaking it all in. And um, I, you know, I, I learned a lot through, through that, but looking back, I wish that I would have done a few things differently. I would, I wish I would have like learned how to analyze cities first and then figured out my strategy second and then figured out the property type third. And I just didn't know any of that. I didn't have any direction around like, you should go in this order. You should learn these things in this order. So it was like, it was very clustered. Like my mind was very scattered and all over the place. Um, and, and so it took me way longer than it should have to buy my first investment property. Could have probably bought it in like three to five months had I just learned exactly what I needed to know and nothing extra. So, you know, the internet's a, a challenging way, I think, to learn things because it isn't like laid out in chronological order. You have to bounce around. It's a dumpster fire of information. So that that's why, you know, I, I wish that there would have been a program or someone to help me back then. Um, yeah, like when I went to university, everything was laid out in a textbook, right? You have chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and chapter three builds upon one and two. So everything is in chronological order, the way in which it should be taught. Um, it isn't like that when you're on the internet, but um, yeah, I guess that, that was... That, that's the one thing looking back, I wish I would have done differently. But, um, you know, there was really no one there to help me buy my first, which is why I'm doing that now. Yeah, yeah it's so true. And it's such a good point, too, because we think about, okay, well, the university system is archaic, potentially should be obsolete, etc. But I, I appreciate your take on this, which is essentially one of the things that institutions do is they package information in sequential order so that you could take, you know, theoretical action on it. And that's why there's such an opportunity in the course space, in the community space for people who have done the journey is they can then order that sequentially for people and help them out. Like I want to, gosh, like I, I want to spend hours in this whole like sales, sales psychology stuff, because I know it could provide benefit, but just, just for sake of transition here. So you get exposed to the portfolio, you're, you're drinking from a fire hose, you're starting to put these things together. How does that translate to your success buying properties and then, then take us onto the journey of you starting to help others buy their first property? 
yeah, it, it, again, I was doing the the acquisition. So it was like, how do we do, how do we find off-market deals? So really dissecting what he was doing and then researching that topic. And so I, I, I just focus on that for like a month or two. Like, how do I find property? What does this look like? Um, and then how do you actually rate up agreements to buy a property? So obviously that's kind of what a realtor does typically. So I, I became my own realtor. I didn't go through a realtor license or anything, but I, I essentially became a realtor. I learned how to write up agreements and then how to present those agreements to sellers. So again, that took probably about a month or so to kind of figure out and figure out the conditions and how to present it in a, in a light and friendly enrollment type of way. Um, and that's a lot of selling too, right? Like presenting an agreement to someone, not easy. So, and then the negotiation piece after, right? Like I figured out how to do counter offers and making sure that we kind of give them the price on the, the original agreement, but we make it conditional on an inspection. And then through the inspection process, we actually learn more about the property than, 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 you know, they even knew about the property themselves. Usually like we find all the deficiencies, all the issues, everything about it possibly. And then we actually get quotes from the contractors for all these deficiencies and issues. And based on the amount that those quotes will be, that's how we counter. So let's say we figure out 50K worth of structural issues or foundation issues. Well, we're going to show that there's a quote and a home inspection that, you know, is factual around that. And then we'll counter offer down 50,000, let's say. Um, so I, I learned that negotiation there um, and so on and so forth, right through renovating, renovating properties, finding contractors, interviewing contractors. I already had a bit of exposure in that, having run a home maintenance company through the interviewing and finding people because they worked for me. Um, but, um, you know, this is a bit different because now I'm like, I'm like 22 or so and I'm hiring like a 50 year old that's been in the industry as a contractor for 35 years. And, you know, it, it was difficult. I had to grow some type of stubble here too. It was like facial hair. So I didn't look like I had a fetus face, right? Like it's all these little things <laughs> that, that became apparent because they, they'd right. look at me as like a five-year-old fetus face. Yeah. You did can you say, note that you say down, fetus but face? that is the caption, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway, it was, uh, it was pretty interesting <laughs> stuff. Uh, and then did all the property management for around, I think it was 75 units in total or so at the beginning. So I re-rented like easily 50 units over the course of two years. Um, so that was a lot, right? Like learning how to screen and vet tenants and select good tenants. So what an unbelievable set of skills to go from learning sales, learning communication, running a business, having employees transition into running someone's portfolio. So you learn the jargon, the portfolio, the process, the management. And so now you have this ability to, to acquire properties with your sales skills, build out, manage teams, run the back end, like that sequence of skills is just unbelievable. So what I want to do now is your big mission is to help people buy their first property. And so if you could essentially have direct access to somebody's brain and bypass their limiting beliefs and do a straight download into their brain, what are essentially the top one to three things you want to make sure positively are in there, like actionable things? And what are the three things that you want to make it like if you were like a hypnotist, so to speak, that they couldn't do? Top three, positive top three, can't do. Wow. I've never been asked that before. That's actually a really good one. Um, yeah. I would say top three that I would for sure download right off the bat. Um, first one would be, yeah, I would, I would say again, just going back to what I just mentioned, like making sure that they understand how to analyze cities. I think analyzing markets and cities is totally underestimated and people hyper-focus in on analyzing property, but they kind of forget about the whole idea of analyzing city. 
And one of the challenges that I think a lot of people face when they're trying to figure out the city to invest in is they think that where they live is important in relation to where the property is. And getting over that hurdle is super important because sometimes a market that's in a different country or in a different state or province is going to be way better and give you a much higher ROI than a place that you could drive to in five minutes. You know, you hear all the time that investors kind of buy local to where they live. But, well, it's because they're familiar with it. It's comfortable. So getting outside of their comfort zone, I think, is important right off the beginning. And buying local is like an illusion of comfort. I don't think it really gives you much because sure, you can drive there and you can touch the property. But what does that really mean at the end of the day? So making sure they have good systems to be able to buy outside of the city is important that they live in. So that's the first thing is like understanding how to analyze cities and also with that in mind, like how to actually buy outside of the city that they're living in. Right. Uh, I would say the second one is understanding strategy. So I, I found that joint ventures are like, you know, just incredible. I'd asked my mentor what he would have done differently when he was starting off and building his portfolio. And he said, I wish I would have done more joint ventures. So he bought a property maybe every two years because that's what his mortgage capability allowed. But with joint ventures, you can go and buy unlimited amounts of properties in a year, as long as you structure the agreement in the right way to protect your liability. So, you know, in, in two years, we bought just a ton of property and it was all through joint venturing. And, and so that, I think, I think learning that strategy would be the next thing I download right away, along with the Burr method, um, being able to, to do a refinance and recycle your money and not keep it stagnant like a pond. You want to kind of keep it fluid and moving like a river is super important, um, especially when you're starting to build up that portfolio. You don't want to lock equity like a ton of your own money or your partner's money in a property because it's like pumping the brakes on that kind of building phase. So the Burr method at the beginning until you start getting some momentum built up in cash flow and equity um, is important. So, yeah. yeah. And, and just kind of wrap up the third one, I would say the property type, understanding what property type will give you the biggest bang for your buck. Um, you know, I find at the beginning, two to four unit buildings tend to be the biggest bang for your buck when it comes to price per unit. Um, if you can get into commercial based on your money or your partner's money that you might be partnering with, then, then by all means, get into commercial. But, you know, again, the risk is higher, like we were saying before, you want to kind of at the beginning mitigate that risk where the stakes are lower. So I always find like it's nice to kind of if you're going to screw up, screw up on a duplex in southwestern Ontario where there's jailbirds on parole or something. Right. Screw up with a property at that level. Don't screw up with like a 20 unit building when your burn rate every single month is sixty thousand dollars because you have a bunch of renos taking place and holding costs. And so the numbers at that level can bankrupt you if you screw it up, whereas the numbers on a duplex usually aren't as likely to. So I, I found two to four unit buildings for long-term rentals to be the sweet spot. Whereas for short-term rentals, if you're doing like an Airbnb, yeah, like, uh, you know, single families tend to be to, to be pretty decent. Um, those are the top three things. Hopefully that clarifies it. So it's the city understanding how to analyze cities and work with cities. The strategies would be the second. And then the property type based on the strategy that you're using would be the third. On the, on the flip side, the things that I would want them to avoid would be... Um, yeah, like first and foremost, like making sure that they're working on the business as much as humanly possible, that they're not painting, laying, putting in drywall. I have students all the time that are still like on job sites to this day after doing a dozen projects and it just doesn't make any sense. Like you have to know what your time is worth. And as soon as you're a real estate investor, I would argue your time is worth $50 or more an hour, which really eliminates a lot of like the lower level activities like cleaning and painting and doing even re-rentals for that matter. So a lot of activities can be outsourced. Um, 
we, we use a lot of virtual assistants like in Eastern Europe and stuff for like four or five, six dollars an hour that that helps to kind of keep the profit margins wide enough that we can continue to grow. Um, so so that works a lot. Like we have a portfolio manager that helps a lot with like the renting and stuff. So I would say they want to stay away from like doing a lot of the, the work themselves because there's so many other alternatives to outsource their activities, their tasks at actually a pretty reasonable hourly rate, like four or five, six dollars an hour. Um, so yeah, I would say that, that that's the first one that I w I'd want them to avoid is working in the business too much. Um, yeah, I would say the other one again is like, uh, I'd want them to avoid like being too comfortable, but not too uncomfortable either. There's that, that sweet spot. And I find some, some people are like head over heels. I'm going to go and buy that 30 unit building as my first project. And they eat shit really hard. They really screw it up and they can lose a ton of money. So I don't want them to be like too adventurous and like too outgoing. And like there is being too uncomfortable, like getting way outside of your wheelhouse. But there's also understanding like, hey, you, you don't want to be very comfortable, like I was saying, and buy like next door because like that to you gives you like a lot of comfort. So you want to kind of find that middle zone, that area that you're just outside of your comfort zone. So that's the second one. Um, this is tough. I don't know. What's the third one? Say, uh, yeah, does that help? <laughs> I, I think we're good there, Riley. I mean, first off, props to Matt for the tremendous question. That was a great question, dude. And props to you, Riley, because that answer like blew me away. Um, that was extremely detailed on so many levels. I want to take this in like a hundred different questions, strategizing and joint ventures. Um, so you also talked about, um, you have 16 properties. I believe you said Talk about the strategy that you utilize to number one, find these people to joint venture with. And number two, in order to acquire these properties with no money out of your own pocket. Yeah, uh, of course. J just obviously there's a lot of substance or detail to this sort of topic, but I'd say just, just kind of a quick overview. Getting on social media is just a huge advantage. We have the ability right now to have our own TV show on online, and there's no reason why you're not utilizing that, if, especially if you're trying to find people that you don't know. Um, I always look at the opportunity to find people, um, and it, it, it's kind of three different categories. Like the first category is friends, you know, family, people that know, like, and trust you already. They always tend to be like, you know, if you have people that have money and a mortgage in your first circle there, um, it's the easiest to like, connect with. You don't really have to be online. You don't have to be on social for them to know, like, and trust you because they already know, like, and trust you. But your second circle is like referrals. It's friends of friends. It is important that you're online. Like if someone types in your name on Google, that there's podcasts that you show up on or your social media, it's on your LinkedIn. You have a website ideally, right? And then your third circle tends to be like complete strangers, people that don't know you at all. So th those are going to be people that probably need to watch five or even 10 hours of content of you speaking. So if you don't have podcasts or videos or things for them to kind of get to know who you are and your story, then it's going to be really challenging to have them get to know, like, and trust you. So yeah, that's the key, like being searchable online. Um, I find if someone's a ghost right now on the internet, then uh, it's going to be really difficult for someone to be able to cut you a check for half a million dollars or however much, hundreds of thousands. Uh, you need to be found online. So yeah, I would say that that's the biggest thing. Tremendous. I have a real passion, uh, as do you, for helping people get started. And one of my buddies literally put faith in me in the advice recently, sold his house, took the money, bought an investment property that's creating him $1,000 a month in cash flow. Like he's pumped, I'm pumped. 
he's probably 12 to 24 months from being able to not have to work again because he's going to, you know, just accelerate this. So like are over, like they're, they're putting way too much emphasis on comfort, way too much emphasis on fear, not enough emphasis on action. What, what are some of the things that you're realizing are working to get your people buying that first property, getting the monkey off their back? Like, what are you saying to them? What, what's the thought process? Yeah, for sure. I, I always look at the fear components. Um, and even a lot of the limiting beliefs as being connected when we really look into it, like where is that fear coming from when it's related to buying property? It's relating to like just the lack of knowledge. Once they have the knowledge, then then you're actually good. Like I, I find a lot of the fears that the students have, the, a lot of the limiting beliefs that they have when they come in and they start working with us are essentially erased and eliminated. Once they have the knowledge that directly corresponds to whatever is is attached to that fear. So for example, if they come in and they have fear of um, losing money, it's okay, well, how do we mitigate the downside of this investment and maximize the upside, right? So again, it isn't like being an entrepreneur or a business owner, an investor is risky. It shouldn't be risky. If you know your analysis really well, if you know your numbers really well, it's a calculated risk, you know, the, the chances of you screwing this up are much less. So there is a way in which we can be conservative and we can make sure that the numbers are in your favor. Um, so yeah, I, I would say any risk that they have coming in can usually be eliminated in a limiting belief with education. Like for me, I wouldn't have bought property had I not have learned about joint ventures. I probably would have waited another five or 10 years and missed out on like $10 million of real estate and just a ton of wealth creation and a ton of cash flow. But once I had that knowledge about joint ventures and how it worked, that kind of unlocked this huge opportunity for me to go and, and build a portfolio. So, you know, some people come in and they, they think, Hey, I need money to invest or I, I need X, Y, or Z. And I don't have that right now. And, um, the question shouldn't, you shouldn't be focused on what you don't have, but really on how you can get it, whatever you're missing. Absolutely love that. Focus on the positive element at this point, because you've, you've mastered sales, you've mastered the ability to work with other people in joint partnerships, getting money, et cetera. So if you had a billion dollars in the bank and a hundred lifetimes of cash flow, like how would you structure your life? How would you define your freedom? How would I define my freedom? I would, um, yeah, I, I think the idea of freedom to me has always been just getting to do the things that I love day to day. Like if it's if it's spending time with my friends or family, um, if it's travel, like those are the two things that I just I love. Right, spending time spending time with friends and family and travel. Um, you know, I, I I actually I haven't seen my family for like eight Thanksgivings. This was a big deal because Thanksgiving just passed here in Canada, and and it's because of a commitment and sacrifice to just. To, to that, you know, friends and family and like, uh, you know, a lot of sacrifices. And I just have been focused on university or my business or everything else going on. And this last year, like, you know, the Thanksgiving that just passed like a weekend ago, I was able to not just like go home for Thanksgiving, but also to host it with like 16 of our family members in a rental property that I have in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And so it was really, really awesome. Um, so doing more of that, right? Like not making excuses, just having the ability to, to, I, I didn't have the money and that's another reason. I didn't have the money to fly from Ontario where I live right now to Nova Scotia to see friends and family or whatever for Thanksgiving and other occasions, but now I do. And so I, obviously that's what I'm gonna be focused on is, is doing more of that. 
Absolutely tremendous. Yeah, obviously spending time with your family is extremely important. Riley, I sincerely appreciate your time. Um, to those of you listening, like go check out your first income property and the B&B Inner Circle. The links will be in the show notes. And then Riley Oikel, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for giving us a glimpse into your life and into your business. I mean, this was a short one, but I mean, the amount of knowledge that you displayed was extremely impressive. And um, to those of you out there seeking freedom, freedom is acquired one action at a time. So, so go out there and commit to taking one action and do so within the next seven days. Tell somebody you know that can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one.